Here we go, season seven. All aboard. If you missed it, here's what we believe. 66 book canon. We believe in a 66 book canon. There is no more, there is no less. It's 66 books. That Yeshua, who is preached by the apostles in the Gospels and in the epistles, is the only means of salvation, as we are calling Yeshua, means. In other words, justification is by faith alone and not by works that any man should boast. Faith working through love. We are unashamedly Trinitarian. We're also unashamedly uh, doctor, believe in the doctrines of grace, what is commonly referred to as Calvinistic. The, the new covenant is not time-bound. That is to say that the, the horizon of the faith of our father Abraham is no different. Right. No, no, it is not shy of the horizon of our hope and our faith. In other words, the, that salvation was salvation was the same for Abraham as it is for us. Right. It is Wednesday, May 6th, 2020. This is Messiah Matters, number 299. Hairstyle almost to Fabio level. My name is Caleb Haig. Also in desperate need of a haircut. I'm Rob Van Can you believe what's going on around here? I around mean, here, meaning do, the world? Yeah, I, I Washington State. Probably, my, that's where I live. So, I mean, I was, I was in, I was in the bank the other day, sitting amongst some tellers. Okay, and we were talking about how, like, I'm ready to go get a black market haircut, and and the teller was just laughing because he was like, "Can you imagine, like, some dude with a really nice haircut walking up with a trench coat and pull, pulling out like different hairstyles, like." <laughs> Look, I got the good stuff. Mullet, <laughs> perm. <laughs> what do you That's need, funny. bro? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, how's it going, man? It's going well. Yeah. Going well. Just uh, plugging away. We're in basically midterm right now for spring quarter at Toro Resource Institute. We've got hang on, just issues. You, you oh. are super quiet on my. Now it's not you. Don't turn up. Okay, so keep I can going. Move closer to the mic. There you. No, you're fine. Keep going. I'm also using a new mic. Hashem. This is a. I'm, I've joined the ranks of Caleb, and I'm using a, a uh, condenser that uses phantom power, and I'm hoping that'll be my voice will sound as cool as Caleb's. But we'll see how that goes. <laughs> um, but yeah, we're we're uh, doing the critical issues. Your father and I are are tag teaming pretty much week by week through a critical issues class, contemporary Judaism's class, um, uh, literature from the Second Temple period, and uh, Greek, of course. Yeah. Boy, the Greek, the Greek students, I, I feel it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I know it's like paradigm, like paradigm, paradigm. And you know, Dr. Mounts, we use uh, Dr. Uh, Mounts's uh, Bill Mounts or William Mounts. Um, he's got an awesome Greek curriculum through Zondervan that we've used. Caleb, I think this might be the seventh or eighth year I've taught through that first year Greek. And he has this this image of the fog, right? If you remember, remember you worked through yes. that book, like the <clears> fog, <throat> like as you're learning Greek, this fog follows you, you know? <laughs> and so the more recent stuff is kind of foggy, but, but as you get out, things that are further back tend to get more clear because you've, you've seen them more and more. And so I wonder, I'm like, that's such a good metaphor. I wonder, you know, other areas in life where <laughs> it can be that way, you know, not just Greek. <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, I'm, I'm messing around with our camera angles here. Sorry. Yeah, that's all right. That's okay, well, we got, you know what? I'll tell you what. Let's just jump into this. Um, yeah, what are we looking at we here got, today? Well, hang on just a sec. Let me fix this real quick because this is not right. I am, uh, I can tell, uh-oh. I can tell already that this is going to bother me. So let me just fix it real quick. Okay. And then we'll just get going here. Okay. 
So yeah, you guys, I don't know what Caleb's doing right now. I just trust he's the technical guru. So yeah, well, let's bring this back just a little bit more. There we go. Okay. And let's fix it for everybody at home. There you go. My OCD comes out. I don't really have OCD, but whatever. Okay. Okay. We got a lot. We got a lot to talk about today. And why? Because we got people writing in such good stuff. And let's just go with this. Joshua writes, should we talk about this one first? Or, yeah, okay, let's do this one first, because I think sure. this should be a fairly quick answer, okay? Joshua writes, and he says, hello, Caleb and Rob. Love you guys in Yeshua and the content you produce. Thank you very much, Joshua. I appreciate that. I love that you have been faithfully doing this for so long and that people like me can binge listen to you guys while I'm working, but I have a sincere question. So I can always tell a person's heart and this is a good one because he starts out, this is like a, uh, and he does exactly what I've talked about on this show, which my wife does quite often. It's the compliment sandwich, which is compliment. This is what's wrong. Compliment again. That way the person, and which is good. I, I mean, this is a good example of the compliment sandwich, <clears throat> except for I took out the end part for show length purposes. Anyway, uh, uh, yes, I, and the nice thing about a compliment sandwich is that usually a person is more apt to take it the right way, which I believe Rob and I have done. Um, okay, so here is the critique. You guys seem to give scholars, quotes, scholars, and educated theologians, quotes again, a pass on the heresy stamp, while very much branding your brothers, who at the very least are more suspect of being in the new covenant. I.e., they have... The testimony of Yeshua and keep the commandments of the Lord. Okay, let's pause for just one second. I believe that anybody who has faith in the Messiah Yeshua is part of the new covenant. And I don't believe that that has anything to do with works. And I believe they're they're keeping commandments now. Right, exactly. So, so we're gonna put that's where we need to probably parse some hairs, but keep going. So, I mean, the, the idea that because this person um, keeps the Sabbath but is a gossip is better than this person who um, doesn't keep the Sabbath but doesn't gossip, we're all sinners, right? We're all sinners. Anyway, let's keep going with, I, I think I understand what he's attempting to say, which is that we are more down on people in the Hebrew Roots movement. So, for example, we could say, well... Rob just plugged uh, Zondervan's series for Biblical Greek, right? Taught by uh, Professor Mounts, right? Who uh, I think would probably come from a, a a reformed perspective. I would imagine. I don't know all his theology, right? But I know his translation of the New Testament in certain places, and he would definitely be of a school. I would presume that says, "Yeah, Jesus." said all foods are clean you know or right or you know the the sabbath has been moved to sunday you know so i hear what what it sounds like joshua is saying is like look you're you're being very kind in that regard but you're not um your that kindness is not a standard that you are using equally across the board Fair enough, and let's keep going with his with his email. I think you're right in what he's saying, in your assessment of what he's saying. So um, he goes on, yes, they may not have the same pedigree, you guys do, but at the very least, most seem to, and he's talking now about the Hebrew Roots teachers, I believe, most seem to get that salvation is by faith in Yeshua, and we need to be, need to be keeping his Torah. Note, not all. Note, not all. Not all believe that it's by faith in Yeshua alone. Oh, okay. Now, he goes on. How they go about that is the uh, is up to them and the Father. And you guys seem very vocal and open about them. And I appreciate this. But when it comes to scholars like Walter Kaiser, now I'm glad he, glad he brings up Walter Kaiser. We'll use him in it as an example. And he says, for example, right. and say in one video he is even the exception, even though he is teaching just as much or arguably even more heresy to the body of Yeshua by abrogating even the least of the commandments. I just don't understand this about you guys. Who so much love for the, uh, why so much love for the ed educated, yet so much disdain for those who want to keep the Torah, 
When if the Torah observant people might teach a heresy, scholars and theologians teach just as much. Okay. This is a great question. Uh, okay. So that, okay. I, I get what he's saying. What I'm hearing saying is that basically Kaiser's a heretic or, or, or that he teaches heresy and you guys give him a pass. Right. But, but you have someone teaching who's uneducated, let's say, meaning they don't, they don't read the original languages, you know, they're, uh, and they have, let's say they're questioning the canon. Right. I, I don't even think That's, it's that. I think it's that. more, okay. I think it's, I think it's more than, uh, mm. and, and this, this comes down to the, I, the idea of we need to look at individual teachings and let me, I'm glad that Kaiser was the example brought. I'm glad he gave example. Cause just to say scholars doesn't, you know, doesn't help. We need, it's good. Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. Well, Walter Kaiser is a great example. And the reason why is because Walter Kaiser is the textbooks textbook that I used in, uh, in uh, my hermeneutics class, right? Um, Kaiser wrote the textbook that I used in my hermeneutics class. One of the reasons that I respect Dr. Kaiser so much is because he has a very, what I would call favorable view of the Torah and the covenants. Now, he believes in what is called built-in obsolescence, something that we have not only talked about on this show, but that we have uh, said is very wrong. We don't believe there is built-in obsolescence within the Torah. So I haven't given a free pass to Walter Kaiser. What I've done is I've said that I think that he has a lot right, and perhaps even more than other biblical scholars. Right. But here's the difference between a Walter Kaiser... And someone, Don't I'm, gonna, any. I'm not going to mention any names, but I, let's just, you know, throw out, choose, choose Hebrew root teacher, insert yeah. name here. Insert name. And the reason why I'm going to, t- I would rather sit on a Sunday and listen to Walter Kaiser than sit on a Saturday and listen to this other person. And I'll tell you why. Because Walter Kaiser and I come to the text with the same her- hermeneutical understanding. We might disagree on the outcome due to hermeneutics. In other words, he might have a different interpretation than I do, but at least we come with the same rules of interpretation. When I see these Hebrew roots teachers, what you got is you got paleo-Hebrew interpretation, et interpretation. You got uh, more than a 66-book canon interpretation. You got deity of Yeshua issues. Uh, you got, I mean, the list, sacred, name, sacred yeah. name issues. The list just goes on and on and on and on. And what is more, you have no education to try to back up the claims that you are making. So not only is it coming to the text with a different hermeneutic, but it's coming to the text ignorantly with a different hermeneutic. That uh, Look, somebody right. might say to me, and in Kaiser's book, I think he gives five different um, uh, ways of interpretation. Somebody might say to me, I come to the text with a totally different view of hermeneutics than you do. And this is the form of hermeneutics that I take. If that person is educated, I'm still going to have to deal with the fact of hermeneutics at the very root level. Yeah. It's like, here, here's a funny thing. It's like we can say, Hey, we're, you guys, we're going to build a house and you call all your friends. We're going to build a house today. You guys are going to help me build my house. So bring your tools. I've got all the lumber, right? I've got all the hardware. I just need you to bring your tools. And one do you know, people show up, they bring their hammer, their drill, their, you know, you know, a level, you know, this kind of thing. And then, but one dude shows up with a chainsaw, a chipper and an ax. See, to me, okay, hang on just a second. <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> you're like, dude. To, to me, to me, that is scholars who use a different form of interpret, a different hermeneutical. That's what I mean. It's like the people who brought, the people who brought the hammers and the drills and the, you know, the no, things even, that are going to help you, even the chainsaw, even the, cha- the to me, the chainsaw is the wrong tool. Yeah, but but to me, the chainsaw is a scholar who has a different form of interpretation. In other words, we use a uh, a uh, yeah, but he's his, not going to help. He, he's his he's, chainsaw is not going to be any good building the house. Exactly, and that's why there are scholars that I don't think are any good and any help oh, to me. Oh, right. That, that's okay. So we're talking the now. Same now, thing. now, what I see the Hebrew roots people who have no education and don't even understand the different forms of interpretation. What I see them as. <clears throat> and uh, those are the guys I, they've never seen a hammer or a screwdriver. No, those are, look, my son the other day said to me, dad, you and mom, this is the true story, by the way. He says to me <laughs> just last week, he said, dad, my son is seven, by the way. He says, dad, you guys keep talking about making an add on to the house. I said, yes, that's right. 
He said, you keep talking about thousands of dollars. I say, yes, that's right. He said, I'll tell you what. You buy the materials, you give me $2, and I will build it for you. (laughs) That's the Hebrew Roots teacher. Oh. (laughs) You have no skill to be able to even wield a a, a hammer. You don't even know, you don't even have the basic skills. And not only that, but if I gave you the text... What happens is exactly what these Hebrew roots teachers do. Here, here's another way. Okay, would this gel with this? It has to do with humility and correctability. Yes. Dr. Kaiser, Dr. Mounts, Dr. Petrie. Right. Right. Dr. Petrie. Roman he's, Catholic. He's, he's a Roman Catholic. He he will he will argue that the mass today is a direct uh a goes directly back to the Passover, right? And we're like, uh no. No, he kept going straight where we like, no, the, the road curves here, right? right? But, and so we've never talked about these guys. Well, maybe Dr. Mounts, we don't talk about him much. Uh, but like Petrie and and uh, Michael Brown and uh, so Dr. Brown, Dr. Kaiser, others, we've and always I, said good. And then, and then we've said, but here's the issue. So we've never, we've never just given somebody a, a clean pass. And, and that's the thing is that if you go back and listen to, but, I mean, but, we've, me, we've, okay. we've interviewed Dr. Brown on this show, but we have also excoriated some of his views on things like Itzhak Shapira's book, The Kosher Pig. Yeah. Well, I mean, his view on Armenian theology, he didn't get a pass on any of that. And guess, I just talked to Dr. Brown in person last November and we had a great conversation. Keep going. So th- this idea is, is correctability versus receiving correction all those guys are products of of a, of a system of where they've had multiple teachers and they've had to they've had to do some hard foundational work and that that means there is an honorable there's an honorable um element to those that have that have shown the humility and long-term discipline to actually learn and it without a presumption of, of knowing it all, but rather learning and taking in information of people who've gone before and then trying to to articulate your own voice within that conversation. And that's you, what that's it, what they're doing in the other these what I call the, you know, these other people that the emailer is contrasting us with the, the other brothers that we brand because they're not educated, I would say. The, my experience of people, the people that I know, that I've interacted with, that I would imagine he's talking about, are not correctable. They they have a presumption to know it all, and they won't. They they don't listen. They don't listen. That well, and it, so it, that's it, I, that's me trying to map this email onto my own experience. Let's also say this. This is not across the board. So, for instance, there are people who are in, I think, what would be termed more messianic Judaism. And I know that there's a fine line between these two different terms. But, um, you know, you have people like David Rudolph, like Mark Kinzer, like um, J.K. McGee, right? These guys are guys who have actually been to school. They have done some hard work. We disagree with them thoroughly on a lot of issues that we think are very important, but we've had conversations with, we've had conversations right. about them and it's not yeah, like there's they, no, it's, there's it, no place where we give a free pass, for example, to a Kinzer or a Rudolph or, but there are, there, there are certain people that I will say this, there are certain people that we haven't talked about on this show at all. And one of the reasons why is because you know what, they're doing their work and it's not, you know, we disagree with it, but it's not like we need to uh, beat some drum over, Certain issues where it really comes down to is when you're talking about things that are clearly not historically accurate or, uh, you know, or things that have, uh, were even around in Yeshua's time, things like paleo Hebrew interpretation, all these kind of things and or, you know, part ace or any of this kind of stuff. Right. And all of a sudden people are, are trying to teach whole congregations and lead pe- people's spiritual life from this. Oh. Those are the things that we are going to say, not a chance. If you want to sit down and say, I don't, I don't think that, you know, I think that the Torah is only for the, the Jews. Okay, well, guess what? This is something that a lot of scholars in modern Christianity believe and a lot of, a lot of people in the Messianic realm believe as well. 
Those are things that we need to discuss and, and talk about. We're going to call it out, though. And we do. Right. We do. And this is one of the things that we've actually talked about. Michael Brown, you know, we've talked to to and about Michael Brown on this issue. He doesn't think that the Torah is, is uh, even applicable right. today. OK, so I would say I, my, my basic response to that email. First of all, thank, thanks for the email. Thanks for the what would you call it? Uh, something sandwich. Oh, yeah. The compliment sandwich. Thank you for the compliment sandwich. I, my my basic. If I were just to put one line, I'd say look into the scholars that we have talked about and I'd say we disagree with completely. So um, I, it seems like the email does not acknowledge the existence of those. It just sounds like the scholars we talk about that, you know, that don't promote a, what we call a one Torah position, we give a pass. So, um, and that's not, that's not a full accurate picture. Okay. Um, let's move on. Um, we got, a little bit of time. This might take a, a longer than expected, but um, Evelyn, who's in the chat room right now, wrote in and she says, could you please help me understand what Paul means when he says the following? This is from 1 Corinthians 15, 29. It says, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf or in behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, there's multiple uh, scholarly understandings of this. My father takes one that I had never heard and I asked him where he wrote on this and he couldn't remember. So I haven't actually been able to, to look into, um, his, his, uh, look into his, uh, research on this. He takes the view that this, that baptism for the dead is a reference to being, taking a full mikvah for corpse defilement. Now, my father and I had quite a discussion about this yesterday because I said to him, if this is true, if what you're talking about is true, then it's the only place that I can find where the word baptism is directly linked to mikvah, that is ritual bathing. Now, I know that there is baptismo is used for washing hands in two of the gospels. It's also talked about for washing utensils. Um, in a ritualistic form. So I, I'm not saying that that it, there isn't some crossover there, but we, but I don't find any place, uh, or at least I haven't been able to yet. And I'm willing to, to see this. If, I thought we talked, I thought we talked about this. I thought your dad wrote about it. it it's in Ben Sirah, which is, uh, was originally written in Greek or Hebrew, but it was translated into Greek in first century BC or no, or, uh, I think it was translated to Greek in the late second century BC. And, and it talks about uh, those who are baptized for the dead. And if they touch a corpse again, what good did it do them? You know, I, yeah, I, I, I don't but remember, I don't that remember conversation. if we talked, I don't remember if this was in our show or a side conversation. I think so, this is a side conversation. So, um, so, but it is I don't, there anyway. The, the, the problem that I'm having though is that I don't see how this would correlate to what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15 29. In other words, it doesn't seem like he's talking about. Well, the context is resurrection. Yeah, exactly. So, so I don't understand the core. Like, I don't understand the link that would be made there. That's why I would want to see my father's research on this, um, because I don't see the link. It doesn't. It seems like that's trying to force something into the text to me. But mm -hmm. I, I would need to see that. I would need to see the, the way research. the way I understand it. And again, it's it's a it's a topic I haven't thought about for a while. But that how did the 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 washing and the process by which a, a person who is contaminated by a corpse is restored to full fellowship and and then is a candidate for worship again and coming into the I temple see. and worshiping that's where life is life life is is in holiness and purity and proximity to god death is when you're moved out of that because of sin and death that's in the world and so someone it's not a it's not a function of sin like if if someone dies and we tend to that body we're actually doing what god said to do but there's a consequence temporal consequence of the 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 week-long procedure of washing you know and there's a whole mystery here of how a priest who who comes and ministers that cleanliness they obtain a day's worth of corpse defilement just to come out and help with the process by which a person is restored back into the inside to purity where life is. 
and I think it's a I think it's a picture of resurrection. So my personally, it is a difficult passage, and it's it's led to crazy things. Like I think this is the I think this is the version Mormons. where the Mormons will baptize. Like <laughs> they got it right, the Mormons <laughs> that they uh, baptize like people who are alive, baptized in the name of. Right. deceased people right. like weird weird stuff you know can, can you can you bump your uh mic uh level up just a hair testing one two check 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 did that make a difference I here well test uh, okay so so that's one anyway it's a great what, what, it's a great what rob is talking about is is one avenue that that i would need to study more and before i took a hard uh view either way the way that i've always understood it was um in david garland's uh, commentary on First Corinthians. He gives three main views that are taken by scholars today. I've always taken his second view. This is what he says, and I, I pulled the full quote. It's a little bit long, but I think it'll, it'll help explain this. This is what this is the reason that I believe the view that I currently hold is the reason I hold it is because of this commentary. He says, other views explain the term "dead" as a metaphor for the condition of believers who receive baptism. The recipients are, in, in effect, dead bodies when they are baptized. Understand, on behalf of the dead, to refer not to some third party, but to the subject, those who are being baptized, and paraphrases it, quote, otherwise, what do those hope to achieve who are baptized for their dying bodies? If the completed dead are not raised, why then are they baptized for themselves as corpse? corpses. This view has several advantages. Now he goes through the advantages. And one of the things that I found interesting is in his third advantage, he says, third, it is compatible with Pauline theology. Paul interprets baptism as a symbol of death and resurrection, and the dead either characterizes the individual's pre-baptismal state or refers to the individual's soon-to-be dead body. And then he he says cross-reference Romans 6, 3 through 14, Ephesians 2, 1 and 5, and Colossians 2, 13, where Paul specifically talks about dead in your trespass, you were dead in your trespasses, all these kind of things. So the idea is, when when Paul says this in 1 Corinthians, what he's saying is, why why are you going to get baptized? If there's no resurrection, in, in, in if there's no resurrection, why get baptized into Christ at all? If you're a dead body and you're just going to go and be dead once you die and there's no resurrection, it doesn't matter. Why even get baptized? So that's always the the view that I've taken. I could read this whole thing. I'm not going to, but that's always the view I've taken. However, I am more than willing to be uh, shown how uh, how both what you have said and what my father has alluded to is the idea of a mikvah for the dead. Now, once again... I think that this would be interesting because it would be the first time in Scripture, at least, and I know that you've referenced Ben Sira, it would be the first time in Scripture that I could find where a baptism, that is, like something that wasn't a con- convert conversion baptism, was referred to as baptism. Yeah, I mean, and again, one of the issues we have there is the lack of, we, we don't have the verb used in the Greek Torah, for example. So it's... Right. The use of Greek, of course, is a second temple period phenomenon, right? In right. the, in the uh, phenomenon um, for Jews to start using Greek and then try to express, you know, their understanding of, of the Hebrew Bible in terms of Greek. And they, they didn't use the word baptizo in the verb, you know, in the Greek Torah. So, so there's a there's that difficulty. So you, in other words, if you're going to say, well, I'm going to just look up the word baptizo in the, uh, the Greek Torah, you're not going to find it. And so, uh, and that's, well, a, fair, and that's Lois, a fair point. Lois brings up one of the arguments that some people have said. She says, sounds to me like Paul is responding to an erroneous practice at the time, kind of jabbing at those doing that while retaining Sadducean mindset. The problem with this theory is, and I, Lois is not the first one to suggest this, but the problem with this theory is that we have absolutely no um, evidence that this was a practice in the first century. There's, there's no evidence that anyone has been able to find to link even, either the Corinthians or any other pagan practice of baptizing for the dead. You only find it later. And tied specifically to Paul. Right, right. So, yeah. uh, I mean, 
I'm not opposed to that view. I'm not opposed to the idea that this is a practice that that is going on in Corinth or something at the, at that time. But and the, and the hinge is on, the hinge is on this the the word necros or necros actually right. in Greek. It's it's it it can mean a corpse, right? Because it's because it's an adjective, but it could be it can just mean corpse or it can mean substantively it can mean a dead person, right? But it can just literally mean a corpse. Well, so I was what I was going to say is for me to accept this this notion that there was a practice, you know, that he's speaking to a specific Corinthian practice, we'd need some evidence, some reference, some any evidence uh, what at all that there's actually this kind of practice going on or that went on, and it wouldn't even have to be a lot if you had some. I mean, you know, it, I'm sure that if if any evidence was produced, it would probably tip the scales one way or the other. Maybe not, maybe not completely for some people, but it would it would at least give that view some some leg room, you know. Yeah. Um, okay. Shall we get to it? Shall we get to the main topic? Are we not there yet? Uh, we're not there yet. Let's let's do it. <laughs> let's do it. Um, okay. So I'm the very first clip that I got. We 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 clipped John Piper, and we did this because uh, oh, Rob, that's right. Yeah. Rob okay. was listening to John Piper and uh, heard this. Um, I have a lot of respect for John Piper, but due to the email that we got that we talked about first, let me just say I disagree with Piper, especially on his view of the law in the life of believers today. Um, and there's we, another example. There's you know, another. We, we've example. talked. We've actually clipped John Piper before and his view on the Sabbath, and talked about why we believe that John Piper is wrong on that. With that said, John Piper has been a great, great encouragement to me in my walk and my yeah. coming to Christ. And so I believe that I do owe him something as a tool of the Almighty to bring me closer to him. So this first intro is the very first clip, and I did not put the link to this in the show notes, and I apologize. Um, this, this first clip is the first minute and five seconds of the video, and it's just a setup of what they're going to talk about. Now, after this setup, we'll stop, we'll talk um, a, a bit about what they're talking about. Lois, to be fair, I, this might be from 2000. This might be two years old or so. So this is not, to my knowledge, this isn't a brand new conversation. It just came on my radar. And I don't know. Is there a date on it? I don't, I don't know. Um, I could look, but I don't, it's not I don't a big deal. I just wanted to say, me. I just wanted to say that to point out that my interest in this was just, I, uh, um, just on content more generally not on a timing issue of like some hot topic right, right now. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Okay, so let's take a listen. We were talking yesterday and I shared with you Vancouver close proximity to Seattle um, and therefore close proximity over the years to the ministry in Seattle, Mars Hill and Mark Driscoll. And, mm-hmm. and that made a dramatic impact on many people's lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people from this ministry and people in around Vancouver traveled down to Mars Hill, watched it, listened, downloaded to many of Mark Driscoll's podcasts. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know you've commented on your relationship with Mark on your own podcast. And I, I'm not asking you to comment on that relationship specifically. I'm more wanting you to speak into those individuals' lives where coming out of what's happened over the last year has really impacted them, called into question the church, leadership, does it work, can we trust it, people throwing even theological leanings under the bus because they equate it with the individual, and can you comment and encourage those individuals who have been impacted in that way? Okay, so let's stop real quick and, and talk about this for a few seconds. We actually talked about this when this was going on, and this was years ago. Um, for those who don't know, and I live in the Seattle area, and uh, Rob lives somewhat in the, well, he lives in the state of Washington. He used to live in Seattle. What's going on here is there was a uh, church that was, I, I mean, I think that the church itself was probably worldwide known, known worldwide. Mark made a, uh, Pastor Mark Driscoll made a name for himself, um, which it wasn't. It wasn't the greatest start for for Mark. Uh, he was known in, in the Seattle area as the swearing pastor, and the reason why is because in his messages he would use certain words that the average Christian was not prone to using. 
Um, and so after he started to gain a following, he there actually was a little shock. There was a little it, bit of it, it was shock. He used value. shock, shock right. and awe, kind of right. Uh, he but he was very progressive in some of his what he would teach about. His wife and him did a uh, marital series from the pulpit talking about. Uh, and I don't think this was on Sunday. It might have been, but I don't think it was. But talking about um, marital relations, and uh, that was they were they were sensitive about what they were talking about, but they were trying to help um, people who were married um, be able to talk about issues that normal pastors would you know wouldn't be talking to people about. Um, whether or not that was right or not, that's neither here nor there. The one thing I can say about Mark and what he was doing was. He was not. He was unapologetic about being at this at this time. Unapologetic about being a Calvinist. He, uh, which was kind of radical, I think, in these parts. Um, he has since left his view of Calvinism and has rejected it. Um, and but he he was very Bible centered in a lot of what he was preaching. And by the time Mars Hill took off, uh, he had some real solid teachings. Uh, at the time that Mars Hill broke up, I'm not I, I I'm not exactly sure of the numbers, but I think he had 23 churches in total, the satellite churches around, from Seattle all the way down into Texas, um, and I mean these satellite churches were huge as well, and we had one here in Tacoma, and basically what would happen is people would get together, there was a worship band at the church at the satellite church, um, there was a person that would kind of host, and then there was a huge screen. And the entire church would watch Pastor Mark's um, message on Sundays. And so that's why they were satellite churches of Mars Hill. Um, and I'm not positive, but I think they also had a school. I could be wrong about that. Uh, don't quote me on that. But anyway, and so Pastor Mark was uh, doing very well in terms of his reach. And um, Dr. Piper became, he heard a, a, a sermon by Pastor Mark on... Um, the inerrancy of, of the Bible and thought this is just amazing and contacted Pastor Mark and became somewhat of a mentor for uh, Driscoll, for, for Mark Driscoll. Now, Dr. Piper has said, obviously, I wasn't a good enough mentor. You know, he didn't listen to me, you know, fully because uh, some things went down. Basically, um, this is not to, the accusation uh, towards Pastor Mark was that he was uh, running his church like a tyrant and that he had misappropriated funds. Um, and not to talk one way or the other on whether or not any of that was, you know, what happened in that, I don't know. But basically, the result of that accusation was that all of his, all of the Mars Hill churches disbanded. And um, some of them became other churches. Some of them had leadership that was pretty much in place. Um, I know Anchor Church down in Olympia became, I think that was Mars Hill, and that became Anchor Church, and they have a fairly good structure now, and I think they're doing very well. The one here in Tacoma, I think, is still doing quite well. Um, but there are others that, that uh, did not make it. And because of that, especially in the Northwest where I live, there were a lot of people who were without a church body to go to. And even in my group, which is a very small group, we only have about 30 people, we have had people come from after uh, Mars Hill disbanded. So, I mean, the, the, the reaching of this, in at least in our area, was very, very dramatic. And so this is what they're talking about. And so this pastor, and I'm not sure who he is, is asking Dr. Piper to talk about the effects of this. Now, there are some great clips here, and I only clipped three more clips. So let's listen to the next one. Biblically, God has historically been willing, I'm thinking of Philippians 1 now, been willing to use people mm, right. to speak gospel truth who have motives and attitudes that are defective. So it says in Very Philippians 1, they, they were preaching the gospel to make Paul feel bad in prison. Mm -hmm. That stinks. Mm -hmm. And Paul says, what then? That Whether, Christ is yeah. proclaimed. Yeah. Whether good motives or bad motives, I rejoice. So one way to process M Mars Hill or any other 
ministry that has defective, whether the defect implodes like Mars Hill or not, whether the defect to say God is unbelievably merciful to use you and me with our defects to speak gospel truth. Okay. This is a very interesting point because what Rob and I started talking about the other day, by the way, there's a fresh Messiah Matters More video up, which we did on Monday. Um, But one of the things that we were talking about is the scripture kind of talks about this in both ways. The Philippians passage, which Dr. Piper just brought up, is to show, okay, um, these people were preaching the gospel, but praise the Lord because the gospel is being proclaimed. But on the flip side of that coin, at what point do we call out inerrant gospel? What do you think, Rob? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question because, like, for example, if you look at Paul's epistle to the Galatians, it starts out and he's he's real hard line calling these troublers, you know, about these troublers. He wished they would cut themselves off, you know, and then he's even calling the Galatians, you foolish chapter three. Oh, you foolish Galatians who's bewitched you, you know, and um, and there's other places we could think of, too, you know, where Paul he taught and I think Philippians, he calls them dogs beware of the dogs so who's he who's he warning people about are these and and this is a debate within christian world of scholarship is like is he talking about jews that reject the gospel in the first century and are trying to subvert the progress of the gospel or is it uh some people say it's like jewish christians who have a who have a works-based interpretation of the gospel and they're going around trying to teach the gospel and works of the law uh, and paul's arguing against them so there's you know and depending on which stance you take you're going to read philippians or galatians or romans differently but in any event we also have you know yeshua himself calling out people you know with with names like you know pigs and serpents and you know wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, so the question is, when Paul in Philippians 1, which Dr. Piper just cited, says, you know what, independent of their motive, it doesn't really matter because Christ is preached, and in that I will rejoice. And it seems like what he's trying to say is, you know what, I can't control, I'm in prison, I right. can't, I, I, I'm limited, I trust Yeshua, he said he's going to build the ecclesia, and who knows, maybe someone is going to hear, and they're going to hear through beyond the messenger. They're going to go, oh, I didn't know there was a guy called Yeshua, the Messiah, you know? And that sounds, that's like something, that sounds important. I want to pursue that. And so they, they're they temporarily listening to a false teacher <clears throat> or a teacher with wrong motives, Right. And this is, but and, they, but, but what the Ruach did was it's like, oh, they, there's something they take away and then they're just going to disregard this guy and they're going to, they're going to pursue and hold on to that. That's how I think Paul and, is holding space for. In right. and, and, and we talked about this in our Messiah Matters more. I brought up the idea of Benny Hinn and, uh, you know, that people have come to Christ through that ministry albeit after they came to Christ, they then left that. Right. That so teaching. question here, I don't, I don't think we got to it in the clip yet, but at some point Piper says, Oh no, hang on. Wait, wait, I clipped it. Are we going to get there? Yeah, we'll get there. Hang on. Okay. Okay. Let's go. Don't, don't jump the gun on me, man. Come on. I clipped it. Sorry. I started good. Cause I was like, is he still, it sounds like he still might hold to the doctrines of grace. Driscoll. Driscoll said in one interview, and uh, this was about a year ago or so that, uh, that, uh, the idea of Calvinism was a ridiculous idea. Okay. Okay. I was just looking at his Wikipedia page. So and, who knows? Anyway, and, I, and, I just, I don't want to misrepresent the guy. And Twitter blew up. Even okay, I commented okay. on it. I mean, Twitter okay. was ablaze. He's, he's not really the main topic here, but right. but right. Okay. Keep going. Okay. So this next clip is only 15 seconds long. This was such a good point that I had to clip it. It's a bit off topic, but let's take a listen. To walk away from Jesus because Jesus' representatives are failures is to make an absurd choice. Jesus is our only hope. Now, this is a very important point because I've seen this 
I've seen this time and time again, and I've seen it. I mean, I've seen it in the congregations that I've been a part of. Your leader, your pastor, your whatever you want to call him is a man and is a human who is a sinner. If you are putting your trust and your hope in a man outside of Yeshua, who is in fact God, then you are putting your trust in the wrong thing. This is an argument for the Trinity too. Exactly. Because because back to this idea of dead, the next verse of that first Corinthians, by the way, is Paul says, I die daily. right? Right. In other words, that the words that we speak that is true in knowledge, that's not birthed of this flesh and blood. Right. That's birthed from the Ruach, right? I mean, it, it yeah, no, no, it's a, it's a good, it's a mystery and it's God's grace. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm on, I'm full on board with what he's saying right here. It's absurd to think, and I've heard this before, but, oh, you know, I went to that church and the I hate the pastor. The pastor said something I disagree with. And so therefore all Christianity is bogus. And, you know, I reject the Bible, you know, and there it's, it's absurd. It's, there's really a deeper issue you know, with that person. Well, I mean, we see this a lot in, I mean, this happens a lot with, with uh, the Torah movement as well, right? People will come and say, Oh yes. Oh, we understand. We need to be keeping, you know, we need to, we need to keep a kosher diet. We need to keep the Sabbath, all these kind of things. And then what happens? You know, somebody, the, the leader does something or, you know, something, the people get disillusioned with the leader or whatever. They leave. And what happens? They don't hold fast to that. They go right back to, you know, it's like, what was convicting you? Was the Holy Spirit convicting you or was right. the pastor convicting you? Right. This is this is the wise and the foolish virgins. This is the, the right. At, at one point, you can't differentiate among the group because it seems like they're all there for the same reason. And then the trial comes and the trial comes and it separates. Right. Sometimes there's people kind of in the middle like, oh, where, where, which side am I on? But 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 the but he he splits it. I've told my family. If we didn't have a congregation, if we were under extreme persecution and we didn't have a congregation, we would do the same thing and believe the same thing in our house. Whether we had a congregation to go to, whether we had a leader to go to, whatever. We believe in God because we believe in the Bible and we and we have been right. saved by, by faith. And if we have to, to right. find a congregation, we will leave. We will go to another place. We'll do whatever we have to do. This gets back to building the ecclesia. Because I, I depend, for example, I look at, I look at your dad, Caleb, you know, Tim Haig. I look at Ariel Berkowitz as major uh, placeholders. Right. In, and uh, over the, over a long, over a lifetime of giving them, giving their life for, for this ministry and taking a stand hermeneutically that is at odds with, and, and maybe not totally with, you know, because, because Ariel Berkowitz would rejoice at the same Dr. Kaiser works that we would rejoice in, right? And and we would also have the same thing, well, built-in obsolescence, you know, we, we wouldn't agree with that. But we would still rejoice in all the good things that Dr. Kaiser has accomplished because he too had to, he, there were people pushing against his Right. Uh, formulations, you know, and uh, so there's an egg. What I want to say is that, you know, even if we didn't have a building to go to, we'd meet in our house. I still am in debt to an exegetical tradition right. of men. You know what I mean? It's not, I don't listen to every Christian preacher ever. I don't listen to, I don't follow YouTube podcasts of every pastor. I, I can't. I have to, I, you know, there's people who will just Google something and they'll just listen. You know, for me, it's like, I've got a, I've got a limited group of people that I trust and listen to. It doesn't mean I can't hear, like I'll listen to the Piper thing and I'll go, okay, you know, and I'll say, I'll say, okay, I, I accept this, but I don't accept that other thing. Um, but I, but that skill set and that discernment does not come easy. That comes because people have labored in the word. And they've taught and they've taught and they've labored and they've taught. And we are the beneficiaries of that. If the, if the physical church buildings are taken away, you know, 
the my discipleship formation, my character formation is still a product of the labors of those people. So for example, if a new believer came and you know didn't know Greek, didn't know Hebrew, and they were cut off from society and they didn't have access to Greek or Hebrew, they would, by the Holy Spirit, they would do the best, you know, by what text they have. You know, now we're getting into what does it mean to have the access to the word of God and and interpretive history and stuff like that. But ultimately but ultimately coming back to to Piper's point and coming back to the point of of you know you should see your 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 pastors and your leaders as people who are sinners who have been charged to do something but that doesn't make them perfect people. Ultimately, right. you know, we think oftentimes of a trickle down. It starts with Christ then the church leaders and then the you know then the family unit and the structure and that but you can think of it from the ground up as well. Our foundation is Christ. Next comes the personal relationship between you and Christ. Then comes the family structure and how the family works together to build that faith. And then comes the community structure and how the community, your family works within that community to build that community up, to build the ecclesia. But ultimately, the people the people who uh, are relying on their pastor, this is idolatry. It is a form of idolatry to put your pastor in the place that Christ should be. And this is exactly what Yeshua says when he says, call no man rabbi, or, you know, don't let anybody call you rabbi, call no man father. Call. He's, not, he's not saying that you can't call your dad, dad. What he's saying is, is as soon as you put your, your leader into a place that Christ should be in, that only Christ should be in, you have crossed the line because you have one father in heaven, you have one Messiah, one rabbi, and it's Yeshua. Okay, let's go to this last clip by Piper, and this is going to wrap us up. This is a minute and 16 seconds, so bear with me. God must be the kind of general over his army that willingly accepts tactical defeats for strategic victories. That's a, that was a defeat. That was a tragedy. The, the debacle in Seattle is a tragedy from untold angles. Lots of people hurt. It was a defeat for the gospel. It was a defeat for Mark. It was a defeat for evangelicalism. It was def a defeat for re uh, Reformed theology, for complementarianism. It yeah. was a defeat. There's just no, not trying to whitewash anything. It was a colossal satanic victory. Hmm. And the general is not out of control. Yeah, amen. The, the general didn't say, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do in the Northwest now. I just, I don't have Mark Driscoll anymore. Right. I just have a clue what I'm going to do in, in North America now. He's not, he didn't drop the ball. He's not sweating. He's not anxious. He doesn't know, he is totally in charge of this war. He permitted a tactical defeat for the gospel. Okay, so the question that is that Rob asked me is, does the devil, does Satan have victories? Because the quote there was, it was a colossal satanic victory. Right. That's what Piper works. And that's what I told you, Caleb. I was like, you know what? I I don't, that doesn't sit with me. I can't call it that. I think you have, I think the last thing that he says in that quote is probably the thing that I had to really latch on to. Let's listen to this end totally in charge of this war. He permitted a tactical defeat for the gospel. He, de he permitted a tactical defeat for the gospel. In other words, all things work together for good for those who love Christ. Paraphrasing, right? But, that, but ultimately, S Satan sees this, whether it's foolish of him or not. He sees this as a vi victory. Why? Because you have people who probably gave up on their faith, didn't find a church after Driscoll's church, right? Are staying at home now instead of being part of a body. Is that is that a victory for Satan? In 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 those in those terms, I think it is. However, how many people were playing church there? This is the issue. This is now getting to the issue. Instead of calling this a colossal satanic victory. I say this is a, a separation of wheat from chaff. In other words, 
people, people were calling good what God was not calling good. And what happened is they built, they started building a house and the house got bigger and it was like a giant mansion and people loved visiting this mansion and they loved, they had parties there. They loved watching the sunsets together. Da, 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 da. They invited more and more people. And then all of a sudden the storm came and blew the sucker down because it was all me. It was all built on sand. So that's I, not a victory for I, Satan. I don't know if that I, is, that, I don't know if I'd say it was all built on sand. I think that what I would say is there were mistakes made by leadership and that the almighty used that to shine a light. Now, what here's, here's the end all be all of that. I think that what you're saying is right in that most of the time when a church, when something happens in a church, there's a split, those kind of things. I think most of the time what people say is Satan is winning here or Satan has attacked us. But what is rarely said is the almighty is shining a light on hearts right now. In other words, the almighty is, is doing a work here. It's usually when something like that happens, it's attributed to Satan is doing something. So where is the, where is the actual church? If Yeshua says, I will build my ecclesia and the gates of hell will not uh, prevail over it. So, I have to look at that and say, okay, well, they were they were playing church, but it wasn't Yeshua building it. I mean, here, this is the thing: does Yeshua build something and then this and then Satan knock some of it down, and then they're like, okay, I'm going to accept this temporary setback. Chaffed in the chaffed in the in the wheat, man. Or is Yeshua preparing building materials? Right, right. And so he's like, okay, I'm going to let all these guys play church because of the the, the Philippians one concept right you know that paul is is on to say look the gospel's being preached yeah but hang on just like you can't say you can't say these guys because i mean certainly there were people who when the when the chaff got blown away there are people who are still in this i mean i know good bible believing christians and pastors who stepped up to the plate and said we're not gonna let this this go in other words, you know, look, the, the pastor of the church who, that was Mars Hill here in Tacoma, Bubba, he still preaches at that church. And he, he stepped up to the plate and said, I'll start preaching. And he did it. You know, and they still, and now that church is thriving. Now, I'm not saying that I, I agree fully with that church's no, I, I theology or anything like that. All I'm saying is, is that it seems to me like when Mars Hill exploded, and it, it is exactly what you're talking about. It was a sifting. Now... The question that I think needs to be asked is, was the chaff that got blown away a victory for Satan? Because I think that there is an element of there is evil going on. There are attacks on the church by the evil one, right? And But, but look at Job. I mean, I think that, that uh, Satan is being used as a tool for, for God's ultimate end goal. So this tool is being used by, I mean, you know, the tool comes in and cleans house and takes what he can. You know, it's like the thief coming in and grabbing so, his right. And when we were talking about this other day, you mentioned Peter, you know, Yeshua says before the cross, he says, you know, Satan is desire, desires to sift you. Like, right. But I will, um, I've prayed for you and you're going to be right. restored. So Yeshua is already knows what's happening. He already knows in advance. And he says, you're going to be restored when right. you're restored. Okay. And then feed, you know, the end of John, you know, the feed my sheep part is part of that too. So the question is at one point, Satan thinks he's doing a victory. Every time, of, every time Peter cursed or, or, you know, said, I don't know, or denied Yeshua, Satan's like, yeah, right. yeah. But in the end, He's like, man, what a Satan's like, what he thought was a victory is just a bunch of like chaff. Like there's no victory there. I mean, that's the way it seems like in a way when, when they're nailing Yeshua to the cross, Satan's like thinking that this is a victory, you know, Oh, all the, all the disciples are scattered. Peter's over there denying him. Everybody's afraid and hiding. And he's like, and we've, I've killed him. I've killed him. Satan seems to have what's this victory. Yeah. This is a this is a beautiful picture uh, that that C.S. Lewis paints in the line the witch in the wardrobe right. Edmund has gone with the witch, yeah, and then the lion comes and redeems Edmund, and she thinks the witch thinks that she has the victory, 
Right. She's going to kill the lion just to save this punk kid. But I mean, I think you're right. But at the same time, there, I think that look. The Here's cha- the question: What is if we were to let's let's take this idea of a satanic victory outside of the context of this Driscoll or, or uh, Piper Driscoll argument, and just say, just from the Bible, if we were to talk about what is a victory for Satan, do we know? Do is there a, is there like a a uh, biblical foundation where you say, yeah, here here's what a, a satanic victory would be. Now, I think Piper knows that this is that this ultimate, and that's why he says, well, maybe what it is, it's a tactical, on the tactical front, that the church is gaining wisdom because there's a there's an ouch, there's a trial, there's a oh man, we I made think... some bad choices. But but the but the overall strategy of the of the battle is still God's in charge. I think that anytime a believer or anyone succumbs to sin. Satan sees it as a victory. And so this is how Peter, even though he, you know, he's one of the elect, denies Yeshua and it's seen as a victory for Satan. And in that respect, and I mean, we can we could look at anything. So, um, you know, death in and of itself. I mean, the Holocaust. I, I always think of the Holocaust in these kind of conversations. Was this a victory for Satan? Certainly it was so much death and just so much sin and evil. And I mean, I think demonic presence clearly is pushing so much of this. Hate has just enveloped people to the fact that they can do horrific and just atrocious things to other people, right? This is a victory for Satan in that sin is reigning in the hearts of men. At the same time, was there something that glorified Christ that comes out of this? Certainly the death of the Jews was not it. But how many people came to Christ? How many people, you know, how many generations afterwards now have turned to defend Israel? Well, here's another way to look at, at all the death by wicked uh, fascism or, or uh, you know, totalitarian states in the 20th century, you know, we're talking millions and millions and millions and millions and millions of people. How many of them were believers? Right. So. Yeah, this, so, is, yeah. this is, this is a really hard one for me and my son. You know, my son always says to me, dad, I have so many fears. You know, he, you know, he doesn't want to go to sleep by himself because he's afraid of the dark. And it's a very fine line for me to say, you know, I have to be very careful not to say something like, you believe in God, so God will protect you. Because the last thing I want him to think is that nothing bad happens to believers. Right. At the same time, I want him to know trust in the Lord. Because this life is just a... It's it's just a fleeting moment, and we will yeah. spend eternity with Christ. Well, King David, you know, right. and uh, of course Yeshua is an example. And Yeshua says, you know, if they treated me this way, right, the the disciples not above his teacher, and um, right, yeah. So, the, but we are to trust God. We are we are to to affirm for the world and for ourselves that we are. Sons of Abraham, we're 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 sons of the covenant. You know what? You know what? It just it would just dawn and all on the me. blessings thereof. I yeah, completely agree with you. You know what just dawned on me though? This conversation has to be totally different if you are an Arminian. Unpack if you don't that. believe in the sovereignty of God and you don't believe in God is in control of everything, right? In other words, a person can lose their salvation or whatever. Then certainly right. Satan has victories. Because he can pull, if you if you hold to Arminian theology, then then Satan can win the victory over you. You right. never have assurance that you're saved. Right, we, right, right, and, and <laughs> that the church. Which how could you be? Here's a here's an interesting question. How could you be an Arminianist and assert, like Yeshua says, "I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell will not prevail over it." How could you hold? How would they? How do they un, understand that verse? 
See, this is uh, why James White always continues to say that that Arminian theology, its it, its logical conclusion is open theism. That is that God is not in control of anything and doesn't know. And his right. his his prophecy is just a a guess and, and of it's, the future. It's all handed, he handed all over to man. Educated guess, and now it's just you know he he's taking his his hands off the wheel. Cletus, take the wheel. And instead you know, of Jesus, take the wheel. It's okay, Adam, take the wheel. Yeah, Cletus, take the wheel. Anyway, the point is, is now it's where does the car go? You know, God just kind of took his hands off the wheel and, and he's just, he doesn't right. know what's going to happen. And the the interesting thing is that my, I mean, most of the people I know hold to Arminian theology. I would say I'm, I'm very much the minority when it comes to my views of the doctrines of grace. However, no one has been able to uh, give me a, a good explanation of how this, how this works if God is in control of all. And all things work together for good for those who love love Christ. If our salvation is not secured, if God doesn't know, and if He does really know, if God really knows, then do we really have a choice? That's not. Now you're now you're seeping into Calvinistic theology. Okay, it's been a good conversation. I hope that people have enjoyed it. I'm sure we'll get a lot of <laughs> a lot of emails and comments on that one. Um, yeah. All right. Well, we got to all of our topics and, uh, hopefully we'll have some more great stuff for you next week. I hope that, uh, this has been uplifting and, and, uh, yeah, give us a call on our comment line. It's 253-465-3205, 253-465-3205. You won't talk to us. You'll just get an answering machine so you can tell, say whatever you want. Tell us that you love, hate, whatever. It's, uh, um, yeah, it's up to you. You can also send us email, chagatorahresource.com. It's chag at torahresource.com. Go to Torah Resource and find all sorts of wonderful and free resources. All right. We hope that this conversation has glorified our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Messiah. Why? Well, because Messiah matters. Messiah matters.